0: We're looking this morning at verses 1 to 8. Now some people believe, some scholars, that verse 1 is in fact the title of Mark's gospel. And of course many of the first verses of the first chapter of books in the Bible are indeed the titles, if you like. There are others who believe that this verse 1 is referring to what follows in the next verse and right through to verse 8 or thereabouts. How the story of the gospel began. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, if you want to compromise those two views, uh, verse 1 to 8 then could comprise of, if you like, the beginning of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's how the whole story began. Well, how did it begin? I wonder if I was to ask you the question, where did the gospel begin? What would your answer be? It's a kind of tricky one, isn't it? Perhaps your answer would be, well, it begins with the nativity. Jesus being born, the Son of God into the human race in a miraculous way at his conception and then born in Bethlehem's manger. Well, we've got a problem with that because Mark, as we saw last week, doesn't have a nativity story. Yet he has taken it upon himself as verse 1 shows us, to write the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we'd have to say that the account of the gospel as such does not begin essentially with the birth of Christ. And indeed, Mark begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the story of the ministry of John the Baptist. Now you remember we outlined last week that Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel is to show forth the king and his kingdom. And he gives us the nativity story and indeed the lineage of the Lord Jesus to show that he is of bloodline of the king and he is the promised Messiah king. Luke's gospel, the purpose of the writer is to show forth the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and such he gives us another genealogy of the Lord Jesus as a man. John's Gospel, the purpose is to set forth Jesus as the Son of God, as being divine. And so he gives us uh, this nativity story, as it were, way back in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. His Sonship as the eternal Son of God, rather than a Son of Man. Mark's purpose, of course, as we've said, is to set forth the Lord Jesus as the Servant of Jehovah, and it appears that as Mark does this in his gospel, he's keen, dare we say, even impatient to launch into the presentation of the earthly service of the Lord Jesus to God and to all of mankind. Look at chapter one, for instance. He rushes through the record of the ministry of John the Baptist, and and little. Uh, more than, than eight verses. He rushes through the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the temptation of the Savior in a verse or two to get to the record in verse 14 following of Christ's ministry on the earth. So Mark is giving us a record of the servant of Jehovah and that record does not begin in uh, Bethlehem's manger, but strangely it begins in, In a city called Babylon. Babylon? Well, it's as if it begins there, because he takes us right back to the ministry of the evangelical prophet Isaiah, who ministered to the the, the Jews as they were facing captivity in Babylon because of their sins against God. And we have in verse 2, as it is written in the prophet, some manuscripts say in the prophet Isaiah, and there is the prophecy. I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark giving us an account of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ takes us back to the prophet Isaiah. And he also quotes Malachi, and in fact, he quotes him first uh, in in this verse 2, for it is he who said, I send my messenger before thy face. And then in verse 3, he quotes Isaiah. Two quotes from the Old Testament, Malachi 3, verse 1, and Isaiah 40, and verse 3. So right away, and we'll visit this in a moment or two, he's going back further than Bethlehem to establish the identity of the one who is the servant of Jehovah. Mark is seeking to establish for us the servant's identity. And verse 1, he does it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the man who would be the saviour of mankind. Christ, the anointed one who was prepared of God and prophecy in the Old Testament. And this one is none other than the Son of God in his divine being. He is the eternal pre-existent Son. But this is Mark's point. Where does the gospel begin? The servant of Jehovah begins in the Old Testament prophecy. He is the son of God. So Mark, as the Holy Spirit's inspired author, is now witnessing to the identity of this servant of Jehovah. Mark is witnessing to it. And now he's pulling up, if you like, into the dock, uh, 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 into the stand to witness the prophets, Malachi and Isaiah. And we will see in this account of verse 1 and 8 that he also calls up to the stand John the Baptist as another witness to the identity of the servant of Jehovah. And later, God willing, next week in verse 9 to 13, we find that he also calls up the Father and the Spirit to witness as to whom... The identity, uh, who the identity is of this servant of Jehovah But in another sense The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ Is now actualized In time In the ministry of John the Baptist Who is the fulfillment of Isaiah And Malachi's prophecies in verse uh, 2 and 3 So Prophetically This gospel of Jesus Christ Begins for Mark prophetically in the prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah and all the other prophets. But actually, Mark is saying to us, actually in time, the ministry and the beginning of the gospel starts through John the Baptist. Now, there are several points here uh, of interest. One being, in our particular society today and in the church, the gospel has been redefined by many. Now, you often hear it said in debates on the radio, even in the press, that the gospel is to love your neighbor. Well, yes, that statement and many more are contained within the gospels, but that, of course, is not the gospel. And the problem uh, takes place when people maintain that the gospel is a genre of literature, setting forth a historical record of the whole life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. The gospel, or a gospel, is a form of literature. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that is not the gospel. And we see that very clearly because we don't have a record in Mark's gospel of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. His nativity is is absent. So we're left with the question then what is the gospel? Is it simply the whole story of Jesus' life? Mark would indicate it's not because he leaves out his birth. So what is the gospel in essence? And I believe the answer is given to us by Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where does it all begin? Not just in Old Testament prophecy uh, prophetically in Malachi and Isaiah, but actually where did it all begin? In the fulfillment of Malachi and Isaiah's prophecy in the person of John the Baptist and what John the Baptist preached, and who John the Baptist pointed to. Matthew Henry puts it well when he says in his commentary, the gospel did not begin so soon as the birth of Christ, for he took time to increase in wisdom and stature. Not so late as his entering upon his public ministry, but half a year before, when John the Baptist began to preach the same doctrine that Christ, afterward preached and I believe Matthew Henry is correct but that poses some questions for us this morning and I believe their answers will be deeply instructive and beneficial to us first question is did the gospel begin with John the Baptist the second question is was the gospel preached by John the Baptist the same gospel preached by Jesus well the answer to the first question I think is clear in Luke's gospel chapter 16 16 which says the law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. The kingdom being preached at the beginning by John the Baptist. And Peter, actually, when he recounts uh, during the occasion of the choosing of Matthias in Acts chapter 1 and verse 22, he records there, that beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, that is the Lord, must one be ordained to be the witness with us of his resurrection. Speaking of how an apostle had to be a witness in some shape or form of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, he records that ministry as being from John the Baptist, the baptism of John, to when the Lord was taken up from them after his resurrection. So I think that's clear and in verse 14 of Mark's gospel we see that after John was put into prison chapter 1 Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time was fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent ye and believe the gospel preaching exactly the same thing as John the Baptist preached. So then how did the gospel began in John the Baptist and what was his message? And I want to give you the answer to those questions under two headings. First of all, the Baptist's life was an illustration of the gospel. And secondly, the Baptist's preaching was an articulation of the gospel. So, first of all, the Baptist's life was an illustration of the gospel. In Matthew 11, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets. Of course, he's identified in the Old Testament uh, prophetically and in the New, in Matthew 17, with Elijah the prophet. And we see him very similar in his demeanor and his dress. But this is Mark's point, I believe, and we could go into all those uh, little intricate details and miss the point. John the Baptist lived in his life the message of the gospel. He was a witness to Christ and to the gospel by his lifestyle. And that is one of the senses in which he begins the beginning of the gospel of Christ. Now, let me show you this. Take, for instance, his home. Verse 4 says he lived in the wilderness. William Hendrickson, the commentator, gives us a very graphic picture of what the wilderness was uh, in those days. John was preaching, he says, in the wilderness of Judea, a term indicating the rolling badlands between the hill country of Judea to the west and the, the Dead Sea and the lower Jordan to the east, stretching northward about the point where the Jaybok flows into the Jordan. It is indeed a desolation, a vast undulating expanse of barren, chalky soil covered with pebbles, broken stones, and rocks. Here and there, a bit of brushwood appears with snakes crawling underneath. Another person says, It, it shimmers in the haze of the heat, The limestone rock is hot and blistering and sounds hollow to the feet as if there was some vast furnace underneath. In the Old Testament, it is sometimes called jeshimon, which means the devastation. Hendrickson goes on, It is evident from Isaiah and John's preaching, as (coughs) as recorded by Mark, that the wilderness through which a path must be made ready for the Lord is in the final analysis the people's hearts that were inclined to all evil. So John, where he lived, was actually living out a pictorial illustration of the message that he was preaching to prepare the way for the Lord to come to the hearts of men and women in Israel. His home speaks forth of the wilderness of the hearts of men. but Secondly, his life illustrates the gospel in the clothing that he wore in verse 6, if you look at it. He wore a garment that was woven from camel's hair and a leather thong about his waist, just like Elijah in 2 Kings one eight. And of course, Elijah was expected by the Jews to, to be the forerunner of Messiah. <clears throat> but here's Mark's point. When you looked at John the Baptist, as one has said before, you weren't reminded of the fashionable orators of the day, but of the ancient prophets who lived close to the great simplicities and avoided the soft and effeminate luxuries which kill the soul. His home and his clothing were speaking of the absolute poverty. Of humanity to come to God. And here he is. Calling the people out into the wilderness. To recognize their inability before God. His home. His clothing. Thirdly his food. Verse 6 tells us that he ate locusts. Which indeed was permitted. uh, In Leviticus 11. Mightn't be very appetizing. But it was allowed. And wild honey. And wild honey was often. Bountiful in the clefts of the rock And there's a lovely thought even in that But whatever these uh, foods were And whatever his diet consisted of And I don't think uh, this is uh, an exclusive statement That that's all yet But it's a, a general reference to the simple food That John ate It was of the simplest fare imaginable Now, think of his home Think of his clothing Think of his food And all that is being conveyed here by Mark is that this man John the Baptist subordinated these things which are so basic yet so important to us in our lives. Home, clothing and food. He subordinated these personal things to the glorious task of making Christ and the gospel known. Perhaps he could have been rich, I don't know. But he chose to be poor. One thing certain, he became a fitting herald of him who has not where to lay his head. He became an apt servant to the servant of Jehovah. What was the result of this lifestyle that illustrated the gospel? Well, it's found in verse 5. We are told that there went out unto him all of the land of Judea and they that were in Jerusalem and were all Baptized. Now that is in the imperfect indicative, where it says, "Then went out unto him." Now that simply means this: it's describing a steady stream of people who kept coming to the baptism. Now, all there cannot mean all, of course. Many feel that it could be up to three hundred thousand people who came to John for baptism. But it's again the use of hyperbole. In other words, he's exaggerating to make a point wasn't every citizen in Jerusalem and Judea came out and was baptized, no. But generally, there was a widespread acceptance and an embracing of the ministry of John and his preaching. All classes we know from the gospel came out. Matthew 3, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, some of them went out to hear him. Luke 3, the, the publicans or tax collectors went out. Luke 3 again, verse 10, the rich and the poor were, were there. Luke three fourteen, the soldiers went out to listen to his preaching. Why was he so successful in his ministry? Well, obviously, the main reason was it was ordained of God. He was the fulfillment of this prophecy of the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. But on a human level, surely it is not insignificant to see that this preacher's life paralleled his message. And what he said agreed with how he lived. In other words, John the Baptist was a walking gospel and his whole life illustrated how different we are, how different I am. We talk about sacrifice, talk about giving to gospel causes, but perhaps we just go on our merry way living in the luxuries that everybody else lives in without any inconvenience for the cause. Of the servant of Jehovah not John the Baptist and I think that was one of the reasons that people listened to him do we as Christians go against the trends of the day to make a point for the sake of the gospel of Christ that's what John the Baptist was doing and though he was fulfilling prophecy in this sense is irrelevant we need to grasp the point that John's dress John's lifestyle were a protest against the godlessness, the self-serving materialism of the day, even in the echelons of the religious establishment. His life was a call, literally, to separation. Come out. Fourthly, one other factor that was illustrative of the gospel, not only his home, his clothing, his food, was his humility. As the sun of Righteousness rose on the horizon of Israelite history, John, the North Star, who was guiding folk to Christ, eclipsed. Jesus came on the scene. John disappeared. Humility. And we read that John was quite happy to do that in John 3. John said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I am sent before him. He saw himself from John 3. We, we know as the friend of the bridegroom. Rejoicing in the voice of the bridegroom. And in, in verse 30 of John 3. He speaks these immortal words. He must increase. But I must decrease. Humility. Now we'll look at this uh, a little bit later. But save to say that there's a great lesson in this. For any of us who are preachers. And I have felt the lesson deeply as I've been studying. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary makes the point of how John embodied the message that he preached. And he quoted, uh, referring to 1877 Yale lectures on preaching that were given by Philip Brooks. And, and when he was lecturing, he gave this foundational definition of what preaching is. This is what he said, I'm quoting, Preaching is truth through personality is our description of real preaching. The truth must come through the person, not merely over his lips. It must come through his character, his affections, his whole intellectual and moral being. It must come genuinely through him. He goes on to quote Bishop Quayle, who said almost the same thing by asking the question, Preaching is the art of making a sermon and delivering it? To which he answered, Why no? That is not preaching. Preaching is the art of making a preacher and delivering that. John the Baptist was a living sermon that God delivered to Israel. E.M. Bounds put it like this, it takes 20 years to make a preacher because it takes 20 years to make a man. John from his mother's womb was filled by the Spirit of God. He was a Nazarite from birth, totally committed to God. What a message. But secondly, let's look at the Baptist's preaching. How was he the beginning of the gospel in his preaching? Well, his preaching, I believe, was an articulation of the gospel. Malachi 3 and 1 spoke prophetically of him. Isaiah 4 and verse 3. Malachi says he was a messenger and uh, Isaiah 40 said he would be a voice and the significance of that is that for 400 years after the prophet Malachi before we come to Matthew's gospel there was no voice from God God did not speak to the nation of Israel and now John would be that voice in the wilderness coming to prepare the way for the son of God. Now we have to understand a bit of the custom of the day to Appreciate what this preparation of the way of the Lord really means. In ancient times, before a king visited any part of his realm, there was a messenger that was sent on before him to prepare the way. Often, depending on how high and mighty the emperor was, it was a band of engineers and workmen workmen that would go along the road to prepare the way of the king. For the thoroughfare may have been rough, mountainous, and You can just imagine that these people in their day would have been familiar. Nearly every generation witnessed such road-making for their emperors. Josephus, the historian, describes the march of the Roman emperor Vespasian, who succeeded Nero, and he says that that the engineers went before Vespasian and and they were to make the road even and straight. If anywhere there was roughness or hardness, they were to smooth it over, to plane it, to cut down even woods. If it hindered the march of the army. And here we have an illustration that people would have understood. John the Baptist is coming, preparing the way of the Lord, out in the wilderness, living like an Old Testament prophet. And he's now communicating that he wants to prepare a way in the hearts of the men and women of Israel for the Lord coming. Now, how did he do it? We see how he depicted it, but how did he actually do it? He did it through his preaching. And somewhere in the last, I don't know, many years, the evangelical church has got away from preaching. And preaching is in ill repute. Do anything, do everything, but preach. But it is by the foolishness of preaching that God is ordained to see him. And through his preaching, he prepared the way of the Lord. And in his preaching, he was beginning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ and their essentials. I believe, in John's ministry to show us what good gospel preaching is. Let me show you this, how his preaching was an articulation of the gospel. First of all, verse 4, he preached the remission of sins. Through the baptism of the remission of sins. Now, remission simply means forgiveness or sending away, sending away sin. In other words, John the Baptist, through this baptism, and I believe that it's obvious he he received confession before he baptized anyone, confession of their sins, he was encouraging the people to see their need of forgiveness and to see that they could not achieve forgiveness themselves and then to point to how that forgiveness could be obtained. He's preparing the way for the Lord, preaching remission of sin. Secondly, we see that he's preaching repentance. Verse 4, it's a baptism of repentance that he is administrating. In other words, you've got to forsake sin and turn to God. One commentator uh, refers to the fact how baptism was a wholly novel idea. No one else had ever baptized like John. The only thing that ever existed that was quite close, was the fact that whenever Gentiles converted to Judaism, they were ritually washed from their, uh, their defilement and uncleanness that they had accrued through their past Gentile sinfulness. But the Jews were now being asked themselves, God's true chosen people, to, to be washed. This was unheard of. Jews being baptised. John was wanting to point out that, that all need repentance. Everyone, Jews and Gentiles. So he's preaching the forgiveness of sins, that we need it, and he's pointing, as we'll see in a moment, to the one who can get it for us. But he's also telling us that repentance is necessary, and it's not a cheap grace or a cheap forgiveness. The Jews had to go out into the wilderness. And I just suppose that they would have been reminded of the 40 years that they wandered around in the wilderness because of their backsliding and their disobedience. But the purpose of all of it, John's life and John's preaching, was to get them to that point of repentance so that when the Lord Jesus came, he would have acceptance. How is our brokenness for sin? You know, this is the preparation for the gospel that is necessary. This is the beginning of the gospel in all of our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I have a firm conviction that a great many of the false professions that are around today and the so-called backsliders are because there was a lack of repentance when they professed Jesus Christ as their saviour. They took hold of Christ but didn't let go of their sin. The fact remains from scripture that that means they didn't take hold of Christ at all. He preached remission of sins. He preached repentance. And then verse 7 and 8. He preached Christ. And how else could we see that his preaching was an articulation of the gospel except in this very point? The pure gospel is Christ. And May I just say that it's interesting in passing that John the Baptist did not magnify baptism. I believe, of course, in believers' baptism. But isn't it interesting that that wasn't the theme of his message? He baptized, but the theme was Christ. He magnified Jesus Christ. And often we get sidetracked from Christ, even by sound doctrine and true doctrine. And Christ is eclipsed by our doctrine. John preached Christ. How did he preach Christ? One, Christ's preeminence. Matthew Henry says, Christ is so high, so great, that John though one of the greatest that was born of women, thinks himself unworthy to be employed in the meanest office about him, even to stoop down and untie his shoes. I am unworthy. Christ preeminent. He set Christ above himself. And he set himself as low as he could in the presence of Christ. Now sandals today are all maud corn. But in those days they were composed of leather soles fastened to the foot by straps passed through the toes. The roads were on surface in dry weather. There were dust heaps and wet weather. They were rivers of mud. But according to ancient Jewish tradition, the difference between a disciple and a servant or a slave was this. A disciple was willing to perform every service for his master that a menial servant would have performed except untie his sandals. So what may well be given to us here are the three ascending degrees of humility in John's life. Note it. One, the disciple is willing to render almost every service. A disciple will do everything except untie a man's sandals. Two, the slave, the servant, must be willing to render every service, including untying sandals. But here's what John, this is where he was. The Baptist considers himself even unfit or unworthy to render the service on untying his master's sandals. Travels. The preeminence of Christ, so high and I so low, he preached Christ's preeminence. Second, he preached Christ's power. He says, "He that comes after me in time is mightier than I." I baptized you with water. I drenched you, literally, immersed you in water. Externally cleansing you, but He will come and drench you with the Holy Spirit, cleanse you from within to without. And of course, John could only prepare their hearts. Jesus had the power to mend them. He pointed to Christ, preeminent, powerful. He pointed to his promise that he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And we know from John 3 that this was the new birth. We know from Acts chapter 2 that in the day of Pentecost it was realized in the birth of the church and the coming of the Spirit. And his promise came true. John preaching this gospel of the preeminence of Christ, Christ's power, Christ's promise, and also, though it's not found in Mark, Christ's passion. He preached the cross. In John 1, we hear the Baptist saying, verse 29, and later on, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He knew the basis for the remission of sins was the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. So in John's life, we see the beginning of the gospel illustrated through his lifestyle. We see it articulated in his preaching. In a nutshell, he preached Christ and him crucified. That is why Paul would say to us, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. How do we measure to John? But you know, Mark is giving us account of John the Baptist's beginning of the ministry and gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what John and Mark have in common? They're always directing people's attention to Jesus. Mark never names himself once in this gospel. He, he, he alludes to it in chapter 14, as we saw last week. And John is always pointing people to Christ. And the Baptist witnessed Christ to eventually the expense of his ministry, which faded away, and his life, as he was decapitated by Herod. Can I ask you as we close this morning, what is it costing us to be servants of the servant of Jehovah. Does it cost us our home, our clothing, our food, our pride? Does it cost us ourselves as we point from ourselves to Jesus? Dr. G.J. Jeffrey was speaking many years ago when old telephone exchanges were in operation. Some of you remember that. And he said these words, when we make a telephone call and there is some delay, the operator will often say, I'm trying to connect you. And when the connection has been affected, the operator fades out and leaves us in direct contact with the person to whom we wish to speak. He said these words, John's one aim was not to occupy the center of the stage himself, but try to connect men with the one who was greater and stronger than he. And men listened to him because he pointed not to himself, but to the one whom all men need. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray be our vision we ask that we will take the exhortation of Mark and John and look to Jesus and him alone for our salvation, for the remission of our sins, for the power to repent, the preeminent Christ, the powerful Christ, the Christ who gives the promise of God, the passionate Christ who died for us that we might live. Lord, let us see at all times Jesus. And in seeing him as the servant of Jehovah, let us learn what it is to serve. Let us take the position of John the Baptist, feeling himself unworthy to unloose the latchet of the sandals of Christ. May we perpetually decrease and Christ eternally increase to the glory of God. Amen.